Good morning. Thank you, praise team. Uh, we're going to be in Micah chapter 5 this morning. If you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and turn there. And if you have a prayer slip, uh, we, our deacons will be walking up the aisle. Am I on? Our deacons will be walking up the aisle to collect uh, those. Uh, we'd love to be able to pray. We'd love to be able to pray with you and for you uh, this week. I think we are good. We will find out. We're going to begin. Micah chapter 5 is where we are at this morning. If you are pulling up your Bible, uh, chances are, if you don't have a paper one on you, chances are you are using a Bible app on your phone. And my guess is it probably has a brown logo with the brown Bible, like the one you probably grew up with. That Bible app uh, is the number one Bible app in the iPhone, Android world. It's by, made by a company called Uversion out of a church in uh, North uh, of North America. And what's interesting is, is that company, Uversion, they actually, every year, they just released it again this past week, every year they come out with a release about the most popular Bible verses that were either bookmarked, shared, saved, made artwork, whatever, uh, sent, sent a friend, all these sorts of things. And they come out with this really nice and pretty looking uh, press release. And who wants to guess what the number one verse was for this year. If you said Micah chapter 5, verse 2, you would be incorrect. That's not the verse. However, what it is, it is Isaiah chapter 41, verse 10. Isaiah chapter 41, verse 10, in case you missed that day in Bible drill, uh, that verse says, Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Which is a really interesting verse. What's also interesting is that for the last six years, that's been the most popular verse four times. For the last six years, and the other two years also had to do with having peace and in and, and the midst of anxiety and stress and all these sorts of things. The other two are Matthew uh, 6.33 and Philippians 4 verse 6. And so the, the CEO of Uversion came out and ta- he's talking about this and he's commenting on it. And he, he noted that he's like, you know, it's been a rough couple of years. And so it's, it's great to see that in the middle of hard time, people are turning to the, to the word, to scripture, for times of stability and trying to, uh, to be refreshed in this time of need. He said, it's encouraging to see people continue to cling to God and his word in their greatest moment of need. And so six, the last six years, the most popular verse has been something related to stress and anxiety. And so I, I say, I bring that up to our attention to say that I think that what we, we have a lot in common with the people of Micah chapter 5, is that we are very much a people, much as we might not like to admit it, uh, we are very much a people in need of peace and the calm of the storm. And, so the, and, in, and even though we're separated for about, about uh, 2,000 years uh, from the, the people we're going to read in, in Micah chapter 5, we very much have much in common. And, that, and if you think about it, really what we're celebrating in Advent, thankful for the church lawyers for, for lighting the Advent candle this morning, and really what we're celebrating uh, in Advent is that the arrival of something to be better. That's really what Advent was all about. Uh, originally, that Advent, we're waiting for things to be better, waiting for a person to arrive and change things. We're waiting, waiting, waiting. That's really what Advent is all about. And thankfully, we see that uh, Jesus is the answer to that. 
I'm getting ahead of myself. So the first thing I want to see us to see in our time together today, if you have your insert, you can follow along as we walk through the text today, uh, together. The church has already read the text. But the first thing I wanted to see is that we talk about this peace, that we're looking for this peace, we're in need of this peace, we're looking everywhere for it. And, and here in the text, we see that this peace was originally uh, rejected. This peace was rejected. And if you're familiar with the, the story of the people in the Old Testament, is that it's in some ways it's very much uh, on a loop. It just repeats itself over and over again over years and over different uh, geographical areas. But the, the main theme of the Old Testament is God saves the people, He rescues them out of Egypt. And then he says, because I've rescued you, because I've saved you, I'm now going to call you to live in a certain way. If you go back and look at the Ten Commandments in Exodus chapter 20, it's not just God giving rules, although he does do that. He gives them commandments. But he sets up the context. He says, listen, before I give you the commandments, let me remind you what I've already done. Because I have rescued you, because I have saved you from slavery, because I've rescued you from oppression, because of all of these things, now, given all that, I'm now calling you to live in a certain way. Which really speaks to the reality of the New Testament as well in this way, that grace comes before law. Grace comes before law. And that is so, that's literally a difference of life, life and death. Because if you get it the other way around, and if you say that law comes before grace, and what that means is, is that you have to earn your way to God. You have to do a certain number of things. You've got to check off uh, a certain number of checkboxes. You have to make sure your good, weed, uh, your good uh, uh, deeds outweigh your bad deeds. If law comes before grace, then you and I don't have a shot. We're never going to make it. But the Bible is much different. The Bible says that grace comes before law. And that is just one of the consistent, perpetual themes all throughout Scripture. Grace comes before law. That God saves us from our sin while we were enemies of God. Christ died for us. While we hated God, he reached out in love. And because he reached out in love, he changed our hearts and then want him. We now want to serve him in return. Not to get something out of him like he owes us something, but rather because we want to do what pleases him because we love him. So grace always comes before law. The people here in Micah chapter 5 certainly weren't catching that. And so here what happened is that they, they are constantly, and again, just over and over and over again, just rejecting what God had called them to do. They rejected the commandment to, to worship him alone, and instead of doing that, they're worshiping all these false gods, looking at all these fake, these fake gods around them, all these idols around them, and they're choosing to worship those false gods instead. And this, again, this constant drum all throughout the Old Testament, God telling the people, you need to come back, you need to come back. I'm sending you prophet after prophet after prophet. Come back, come back, come back. And in Micah chapter 2, we, get, we, get a, we start to get a taste of what exactly they were doing. The first couple chapters of Micah are, are, are really pretty rough. In Micah chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, we, uh, he's telling the people, specifically the, the, the leaders, he's saying that, they, that they, they're laying in bed thinking about how they can, de- quote, devise wickedness and work evil. They're laying in bed. Most of us lay in our bed and we're texting our friend or we're watching Netflix or something like that. They're laying in their bed thinking about how they can do wrong to other people. And the way that they do that, according to Micah chapter 2, is that they take other people's stuff. They steal their stuff. They steal their property. They even steal their houses. They're laying in bed thinking about this stuff. 
In Micah chapter 3, he, he again chastises and rebukes the, the religious leaders and saying that, the, that you're abusing your power. And you're abusing your power so much. And then in verse 11 of chapter 3, they're doing all this stuff for money. They're, they're following whenever, wherever the money takes them. Whoever pays them the most is what they're going to do. And in the middle of doing all this stuff, in the middle of all this wickedness, in the middle of all this depravity, they have the audacity to say, God is with us. They're spending time in bed thinking about how they can, they can steal from people. In the middle of that, while they're thinking that, they're saying, oh man, me and God are wonderful. God surely has his hand in my life right now. And then in verse 12 of chapter 3, God, because God is a just God, God says, looks at the bad stuff going on, the evil stuff going on, and in verse 12 he said he's going to bring judgment. And so here we have a really sad reality of where the people were chosen by God to serve him, and yet they're doing nothing of the sort. Remember, going back to Genesis chapter 12, where God told Abraham, I'm going to bless you to be a blessing, that through you the rest of the world are going to be blessed. That's not happening here. They've rejected what God had called them to do. They weren't even close to being a blessing. They weren't even close to living rightly for God. And it shows. It shows. But then we see in verse 2 here, we see that this peace was promise. We had a peace that was rejected, but then we see a peace that was promised. And this is in verse 2. He mentioned two things here. First, he mentioned a place, and then he mentions a promise. He mentioned a place, and then he mentioned a promise. And the place first is Bethlehem. And Bethlehem is a really interesting city. It's more like a village city, a bit of a kind of misleading. It's kind of a, uh, a village. The main point of Be- uh, the main thing to understand about Bethlehem, it's one of those places where they had cars back then and they're driving through, you blink and you miss it. You know, like a one stoplight in the middle with the nearest Walmart five hours away, that kind of thing. That's the kind of village that it was. It was a know-nothing town that nobody would have ever ventured to go to if they had to. And I remember a couple of years ago, uh, we had a young man who was visiting from um, I can't remember, somewhere else in the, in the country, and he was sitting where my wife is. And he was probably in his early 20s or so, and so I showed up, and you know, we always sit in our same spot, and he's sitting where Hannah's going to sit. So I needed to teach him a lesson. No, I, I was always going to say, introduce, I was going to introduce myself. Uh, because you never want to see somebody sit by themselves either, right? And so I, I introduced myself, and the, and the background music was going on, so it was kind of difficult to hear him. But I did hear, I asked him, you know, I introduced myself, and I, and I asked him what brings him here today, and he, I, I heard him say a marathon. I said, oh, that's wonderful. I, I like to jog a little bit. And so I thought, oh, where? What, what do you do that at? And he said, Garyville. I said, Garyville? Who in the world would run a marathon in Garyville? Like, who would travel from out of state and buy a plane ticket and stay in a hotel in Gonzales to train for a marathon in Garyville? No offense to Garyville, but I mean, like, who would ever do that? That's a lot of resources. Like, couldn't you just run around your block for a couple hours? Like, why would you ever come to Gonzales just to go run a marathon in Garyville? And so, of course, because I'm slow, I started talking about running. 
And he's just sitting there, and he's just polite, and he's just, okay, yeah. And then thankfully, Jerry started to welcome, and he cut me off, and so I had to stop talking. And I've been thinking a lot about this, and I get home, and Hannah and I are talking about the service over lunch, and I said, i got to tell you about this guy I met, because she wasn't there that day. Uh, oh, yeah, yeah, I don't think you were there the other day. It doesn't matter. But I'm telling her about this guy that I met, and I'm telling her uh, what happened as I'm talking to her. As I'm recounting this story like I am right now, I realize, oh, my goodness, he's not running a race. He's working for Marathon, the Marathon plant in Garyville. He's here for a couple months. If I knew anything about what it, what it means to work in a plant, I would have realized that kind of thing happened all the time. And so I could not wait to get to back here on Wednesday night because I invited him to a college group and he came for about five or six months until he moved back home. But I could not wait to get back there and say, I am so sorry, I'm an idiot. And he, he laughed it off and, and he hung, like I said, he hung out with it for a couple of moments. But anyway, that reaction to me about him running a, a marathon in Garyville, that's the kind of reaction that people have when it comes to anything of importance when it came to this city. This idea that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem, that anything good would come out of Bethlehem, which is absolutely preposterous. No one in their right mind would have ever thought that. And that's what's going on here in this text. It means, it's, it's interesting, because you remember what Jesus, the, the word Bethlehem, it means house of bread, most likely. And think that Jesus is from there, and he calls himself the bread of life. All these connections here to, to, to Jesus over and over and over again. But here, we see that out of all places, Bethlehem is where the, the Messiah is going to be born. Not in a, in a bustling metropolis, not in somewhere where there's, there's a large population count, where there's just high, not, not the New York City to the world, but in Bethlehem. But isn't that so like what God does? God often takes the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He often takes the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. He always does things in a different way than what you and I expect him to do. And here, this is the place that he has in mind, Bethlehem. But he also talks about a promise here. He mentioned a promise in verse, in this passage here. He's given a prophecy saying that eventually one day there's going to be this ruler, a new ruler that was going to come from this city. And I want to remind us, just to get the chronology right, that what we're reading here in Micah chapter 5, it takes place about five, six hundred years or so before the New Testament. And he's saying from this city, this ruler is going to come. Now, if you've, if you've read the book of Matthew lately, you'll remember that the first chapter, which I think sometimes we tend to skip over, I want to encourage you not to do that for a moment, uh, for a reason I'll, I'll mention in just a moment. But in, in the book of Matthew, the main point of the book of Matthew, if I could just put it in one sentence, the main point of the book of Matthew is, for, is that Matthew is trying to show his Jewish audience that Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah. That's really the main point of the book of Matthew. That Jesus, that's one of the reasons why you'll notice that as you're reading through all throughout the Gospel of Matthew, he's always saying this fulfills the prophecy of, of this. This fulfills this prophecy. And what Jesus did here fulfilled this prophecy. And that fulfilled this prophecy. Because he's going, trying to point it back to the Old Testament to say that Jesus fulfilled Old Testament prophecy time and time and time again. But in Matthew chapter 2, we see that um, and when Herod asked, he heard about this, this child being born and, and he kind of getting a little curious. 
And he'd ask in where this king is going to be born, this new king is going to be born. They quote this passage. They quote Micah chapter 5, verse 2. Again, showing another fulfillment of prophecy. In Matthew chapter 1, in the family tree of Jesus, it's a really interesting uh, line of text. You'll notice it's broken up in a couple of different paragraphs. In the first verse of, of Matthew chapter 1, it said, The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And then he lays out his, Jesus' family tree. But if you compare this family tree with the ones actually listed in the Old Testament, you might notice there's a couple of names missing. And there's a reason for that. He's purposely omitting names because what he wants to do is he wants to do three sections of 14. He wants to do, it's a numerical thing because in the Hebrew, Hebrew letters often, they, they were often associated with numbers. And so in the Hebrew, David is the number 14. DVD, it means it's a, it's a number 14 in Hebrew. There's no vowels in ancient Hebrew, so it's DVD number 14. And so here, if you notice at the end of this chapter and the, the genealogy, He's saying that Jesus is from the line of David and he's doing these different sections of names and they all add up to the number 14, the number of David, that Jesus is from the line of David. It's another implicit, indirect, but kind of direct way to say that Jesus is a long-awaited Messiah. The Jewish readers absolutely would have gotten that. It's a little bit lost in translation, but all that to say that Jesus isn't just some guy. This isn't accidental, that Jesus is a long-awaited Messiah. They've been waiting for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years, even predating Micah chapter 5. Even predating Micah chapter 5. And Zechariah 9, 9 talks about the coming king entering on a donkey, and of course Jesus does just that in Luke chapter 19. If you've not read Isaiah chapter 53, let me encourage you to do so. It's hard to read Isaiah 53 in light of what we know about Jesus and not come away with saying, yeah, that's exactly who he's talking about. You take Isaiah 53, you take what we know about Jesus, they absolutely go hand in hand. But going back here to Micah chapter 5, God says that there's a ruler that's going to come whose coming is from a thumb of old, from ancient days. And so again, this ruler is from the Davidic line, which is the immediate past, but also the eternal past in the sense that, that Jesus had always existed. He, now, he be, became a human more than that in just a moment, but there was never a time when Jesus was not. There was never a time where Jesus did not exist as the second person of the Trinity. The book of Colossians says that everything comes from Jesus. Jesus created all things. That all things were created by him, through him, for him. Jesus is above all things, and in him all things hold together. This is the ruler that's coming in. And where I think you and I may have a lot in common with these people is that they needed a ruler because they couldn't do it themselves. They couldn't govern themselves. Not much had changed. You and I certainly cannot govern ourselves, that we're a people in need of help and peace, even though we might try to deny it to others, but certainly to ourselves. If you think about it, our lives, if we're honest with ourselves, our lives prove a lot differently. To the extent that you know, we've been living through COVID for a couple of years now, there, there's also been what's been formerly called an epidemic of loneliness. 
to, to the extent that the U.S. Surgeon General published an 81-page article about it, complete with graphs and charts and pretty pictures, about what the problem of loneliness that is facing our society right now across all age groups. It's not just teenagers, it's across adults as well. There's an epidemic of loneliness. And what, what they found is, is that there has been a seesaw effect. And what's rising, what's increasing, is time spent alone. People spend more time isolated by themselves, away from other people, usually on their phones or usually in front of a screen. That's increasing. What's decreasing? Time spent with friends, time spent with family, time spent with neighbors. And because of that, it's contributing to this, what they're calling an epidemic of loneliness. We should distract ourselves so we don't think about the struggles that we're having. We distract ourselves so we don't have to worry, think about this problem anymore. I think that's one of the reasons why we're still glued to our phones. We also think that we can find peace on our own. We can find it around us, we can find it in us. But the first one, we can find it around us in the sense that we think that we can to look around at the things that we have, like Christmas is coming up, and so we're gonna exchange gifts, and you know that one thing that we put on our Christmas list this year, that's what's gonna make us happy. This is the year, I finally nail it. And then we get it, and of course it does nothing of the sort. Remember, uh, if you're a college football fan, which most of us are, you'll remember a guy named Johnny Manziel, who was this incredible hyphen winning quarterback for Texas A&M about six or seven years ago. And he re there was recently a documentary that uh, he was in, it was about him. And he was talking about how he's like this 18, 19, 20 year old kid with all the money in the world, and uh, allegedly, and all these things that he had uh, going on and all the popularity and all the fame. And then he gets drafted in, in the first round by the Cleveland Browns. And he's talking about how he's reached the top of his career. He's been working his entire life for this money, this fame, this notoriety, everything. And here's what he said. I had every single thing I could have ever wanted. And when I got everything I wanted, I think I was the most empty that I've ever felt inside. So we look at the things around us that can't do it. And, and if you're like me, I keep thinking that it's going to, if we're honest. We keep thinking if we get this thing, it'll do it, and then it doesn't do it. And if we get this thing, it'll do it, and then it doesn't do it. It's over and over and over again, we keep falling into this trap. Or if we can't find it around us ourselves, well, maybe surely somebody can give it to us. Maybe the government can give it to us. Now, the government certainly had this place, like protecting natural rights. That's one of the jobs of the government, to protect our natural, God-given, born rights. That's the right to life. That is something the government ought to protect. That is a good thing. It's one of the reasons why historically Christians have been adamantly pro-life. From womb to tomb, across all stages of life, life is worthy of dignity and value and respect. But, and very similar to what's going on here in Micah chapter 5, What's the state of the government like now? And it's not just a 2023 thing, it's think about, think about for years. We, we spend so much time complaining about the government, we say the government's so corrupt and so wicked, and that might very well be true. But if you think about it, who put them there? We did. 
So if our, if our government is so corrupt and our government is so wicked, what does that say about us who put those people there? We elected them there. And so we can't certainly find it around us. We can't find it around us, but I think we also can't find it in us. I say, we say, you know, maybe I should pick myself up by my own bootstraps. I don't need God for this. I can just find my own peace. I can find it within myself. I can be my authentic self. I can live my truth, and I'll just find it. But of course, again, that never works. What does it mean to have peace in a world where there actually is no objective peace, but it's just something I make for myself? What does that word even mean? The um, psychoanalyst, the father of psychoanalyst, Sigmund Freud, a number of years ago, he, he had this interesting observation. I don't know that I agree with it entirely, but it's interesting. He talked about how over the past couple hundred years, this idea that humanity is intrinsically special, what he called naive self-love, are his words, naive self-love. He said the past couple hundred years, it's been slowly getting stripped away. And he pointed to three examples. He said, first, we realize that we're not the center of the, uh, the universe that not everything revolves around the earth, so it's not all around us, but rather the earth revolves around the sun. He said that was a big deal. Then he said, because Darwin came along and said that we're not designed by God, but rather we're here by evolution, that there's nothing intrinsically special about you. You're just the product of evolution. And then he said, look at my work. He said, yeah, this this understanding of, of the universe and how things orbit, you had the Darwinian understanding of humanity. And then he said, I'm showing you that you can't even control yourself, that you're, you're often led by desires that you didn't choose and you can't even control. And so you're a slave to your desires. And so he's saying that over the last couple hundred years, there's been this increasing dehumanization of society. But what is, if we think about it, I think we're, we got, it's an interesting point. And I think one of the issues that we're struggling with our society today, because the farther we move away from God, and there is quite a bit of that, the farther that we move away from God, the less that we're able to adequate, adequately engage and respond to the world around us. Here's what I mean by that. Some years ago, there was wrote a book called The Death of Satan. The Death of Satan, and, and the, the subtitle is How Americans Have Lost Their Sense of Evil. And this guy who wrote this book, he, he made a, um, a curious point. What he said was that as we, move, again, as we moved away from God, we don't have any vocabulary to describe what is evil. Because if God doesn't exist, how do you know what evil is? Objectively speaking, how do you do it? You can't. It's just your opinion against mine, or my opinion against yours. And so he said, we, well, we, we have this tension here because we see all this bad stuff that goes around us, but we don't have the vocabulary to express it. In his words, he said, the work of the devil is everywhere, but no one knows where to find him. In the world where God doesn't exist, what does it even mean for something to be right or wrong? And so we have this tension. Well, we know something's wrong, but yet we don't know how to describe it. We don't know how to articulate it. So what do we do then? We can't find it around us. We can't find it in us. We can't just define it for ourselves. And whatever we try to do might work in the short term. It might work in the interim, but it's not going to last very long. 
Did you notice that we've been blessed here at FBC over the past year? We've had several students get baptized. And baptisms are amazing. And what I noticed, I noticed this interesting theme uh, for, each, for a number of these students. We had three students when they shared their testimony at the baptism, the most recent with John Starnes a couple of weeks ago, who shared this particular point. They, three of these students uh, mentioned, both Jesse, Valor, uh, and John, all mentioned at a, at a point in their testimony that a pivotal moment for them was engaging the question, what do you think happened to you when you die? Or uh, actually the way they said it, what, where, where do you know where you're going to go when you die? If you were to die tonight, do you know where you would go? And all three students at some point in their testimony mentioned that that was a pivotal moment for them. And it's not a morbid question. It's a realistic question. The thing is, whatever we think is going to give us peace in the, in the moment, that question is still lingering. So let me, add, let, me, let me put that forward to us in this room. If you were to die tonight, do you know what would happen to you? And I don't know about you, but I think, I think, I think actually, forgive me, I think I do know about you. I think if, that, if, if you can't say that you know Christ, I don't think you have a lot of peace. I don't know how you can. Because true peace comes only from knowing Jesus Christ and everything else with a cheap imitation. Amen. And so here we see in this text that there's this, this peace that was rejected, but thankfully we see this peace that was promised. And then, and then thirdly, we see a peace that took on flesh. The peace that took on flesh. In the early 20th century, there was a German uh, pastor by the name of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, and he was directed by the Nazis. He was executed shortly before the end of the war. And he spent some time in prison before the execution. And, and while he was in prison, he wrote a number of letters to his loved ones, to his friends. And those letters have uh, survived, and you can read them online. But he wrote, a, he wrote a really interesting letter to a good friend of his, and he was talking about how this gloominess of this cell that he was in, it very much like the world outside. And here's what he said. Life in a prison cell may well be compared to Advent. One waits, hopes, and does this, that, or the other. Things that are really of no consequence, the door is shut and can only be open from the outside. And that's exactly what Advent is. If you look at verse 3 here, we, talk, we see here in verse 3, there's this mysterious birth. And this birth that is mentioned here in verse 3, this is what we celebrate at Christmas. If you only eat vegetables, you're called a vegetarian. If you only eat meat, what are you called? A carnivore. What's the Spanish word for meat? Carne. Carnivore, carne, incarnation. It's the same root word, and what it means, incarnation means literally that God took on flesh. That the immaterial God put on meat and took on human flesh, and he entered this world in the, in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Let's we forget, let's remind ourselves who this God is. This is the God who created the stars, the moon, and the sun. This is the God who, who created the trees, the plants, and the acorns. This is the God who created wire, wildflowers, hummingbirds, and eagles. Rainbows, 
the Grand Canyon and Mount Everest. Coffee and the smell of coffee. Food that tastes delicious and friend to enjoy it with. You remember how your baby felt when, when he or she was first born? And that, t- that touch? God created that. God created the laugh of a small child. Is there anything as infectious as the laugh of a baby or the laugh of a small child? God created all of these things. And that God took on flesh. This is one of the reasons, this, this insanity in a good way, this insanity is one of the reasons why J.I. Packer said that nothing in fiction is as crazy, is as fantastic as the truth of the incarnation. It is absolutely mind-boggling. This God took on flesh. And here's what else that means, that God took on flesh. Number one, that God is not apathetic to our world, that God is not distant, that God is not absent, that God is very much present. That the people here in Micah chapter 5, they weren't faithful, God very much is. But then number two, it, says, it means that God took on weakness and that we live in a world where, where weakness is often mocked. Christianity was historically thought of as a religion for weak people. That's why it was called the opium of the people. You just couldn't handle it. You can't handle the hardness of life. You should believe in this to make you feel better. With evolution, we talk about the survival of the fittest. The fittest excuse me. That only the strongest survives. Only that which adapts is what survives. And on a social level, we, we struggle to share our feelings because that's weak. But here... In the incarnation, the paradox of the incarnation is that in Jesus Christ, God, who is the strong one, intentionally became weak. The strong one intentionally became weak to save those who are too weak to save themselves. That's what the incarnation is all about. That the weakness of God is stronger than man. And apart from the incarnation, you and I have no hope at all. As C.S. Lewis, Lewis put in one of his uh, books on Narnia, he says that if the incarnation didn't happen, that it's always winter but never Christmas. Without the incarnation, we have no hope. We have peace that was rejected, peace that was promised, peace that took on flesh, and lastly, we have peace that never goes away. And it almost sounds too, too good to be true. Peace that never goes away. Could everything goes away? The meal eventually runs out. The movie eventually ends. The sunset eventually sets. Our spouse, our child, a loved one isn't there anymore. We're so used to things ending that the idea that we could have a peace that never ends is quite incredible. But what does the text say that this ruler will do? It says he'll stand and shepherd his flock that unlike the leaders of that day that were abusive, that took advantage of people, that were wicked, that were evil, that sold their souls for money, this ruler will be different. Four things to notice here. Number one, action. It says he'll stand, he will stand and be their shepherd. This is intentional, this is action. This is why Jesus calls himself the good shepherd in John chapter 10. The good shepherd laid down his life for the sheep. Not only action, but power. He's going to do this in the strength in the name of the Lord. How much stronger can one be? 
Who's stronger than God? Number three, security. They will dwell secure. Isn't that what we all want? And number four, he guarantees. Did you notice here, it doesn't say that he will bring their peace. What did it say? He will be their peace. He's not pointing, saying, hey, your peace is that way. He's saying, pointing here, saying your peace is right here. I'm not bringing you peace. I am giving you my peace. I am the peace. This is why I think what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, says that Jesus himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in the flesh this dividing wall of hostility, namely between us and God that Jesus is the peace that bridges us back to the God that we were created for. God brings peace not by accident, but by intention. Not by strength, but by weakness. Not by tyranny, but by grace. That is the peace that you and I have. And thankfully, this peace is not something that we should rest in in the moment, but it also gives us a glimpse for the future as well the good ruler, which is why in Revelation chapter 7, verse 17, it says, for the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. That's the peace we have in Christ. It's not something you can buy in a store. It's not something you can make yourself good enough for. There's something to be received. So how might we respond to this? How might we respond to this hope and this peace that is available only through Christ? It's to ask ourselves, one, what is my, what is my peace grounded in? And that's a good starting point. Is my peace grounded in the, in the thing to this world? Or is it grounded in something else? Do you really have peace this morning? There's hope in Christ. Would you come to him? Would you rest in the, in the finished work of Christ, the peace that he offers, to turn from your sin and follow after him? That's where true peace is found, peace that will never go away. And that, that desire for peace, it ultimately found in him. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for your word this morning. I thank you for your goodness and the beauty of your word and the beauty of your promises, which is always true and never change. And Father, I pray you would help us to see that the only place that we can have peace is with Christ. That he himself is our peace. So may we not be so foolish to think that we can come up with it on our own, we can find it on our own, we can make it up on our own. But peace is a person. And so I pray you would help us to strip ourselves of our pride and that we would see that the, the only peace that we can truly have is found in the saving relationship with you. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and let's...